Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you. And for those of you that are new, it is it is nice to see that you're still here. Cause it's it's just not a guarantee. In this thing that we're doing here. The last time I spoke to you a couple of days ago, I had shared with you that in the middle of the night, the rain had uh, found its way into the into my bedroom. And then the next night, um, <laughs> somehow the uh, fire alarms got uh, to that uh, time when the batteries <laughs> started failing. So I had fallen asleep and deep into sleep and the chirping sound started. So I woke up, uh, dismantled the fire alarm, took the battery out, knowing that you have to do all those steps. Got back in bed, fell asleep. And somehow there was enough charge in those fire alarms to keep chirping. (laughs) I see some nodding. So this is this is a known thing. I didn't know that that can happen. So then I buried the fire alarms underneath a pile of pillows. And so that's the first two nights. <laughs> so last night, uh, kind of was eager to see. All right, let's, let's see what uh, tonight has in store for, for my sleep. And it was calm. <laughs> so I kind of start off with that um, sharing because life is like that and life just keeps happening just keeps happening um, Carol shared in her talk that you know if we're hoping that we're going to be able to get out of the conditions of life that's going to be hopeless a hopeless endeavor. You know, it's what kind of binds us all together and what's common to us in our human experience. It's, it's just so deep, so profound. Um, just how sensitive this human experience is, particularly when we aren't kind of racing through all the, you know, peaks, just trying to have peak experiences all the time, hopping from one, you know, search after another, or frantically trying to get out of the unpleasant. And in this environment, the way it's structured is there is this invitation for us to really feel very sensitively what is life really like? What is the nature of this mind and heart really like? And I think the more that we do that, you know, the more that we can begin to sense this bond, you know, the experience of Sangha, of community, that all of us in our own, you know, particular, unique 
stories, our locations in society, in our gender, our form, our race, color of skin, that all of us have experiences right, that are going to impact us. And some of us may be in positions where it's like the arrows just keep coming. There's so many, so many. And at times, maybe there are fewer arrows. So the Buddha gave a sermon, a teaching on uh, that very topic called the arrow. And it's just speaking to that reality, saying that any being, whether on the path or not, whether they've gained a certain amount of freedom or not, is going to experience those first arrows. That's inevitable. There's nothing that we really can do. So those first arrows are experiences of the body. The body is going to hurt. True or false? Right? doesn't take long. You know, in meditation, we know that the body is going to, it's going to start to ache and pain. Joseph uh, Goldstein tells his, his effort to sort of got fed up with the body aching and hurting and sort of funny imagining, if you know Joseph, the long body and sort of, he decided he'd build this perfect uh, bed of a meditation seat and just prop everything up perfectly so that there are no, you know, no pressure points. Everything would be perfect. And he's just curious now, how long is that going to last for before the body is going to start to ache? And, you know, maybe a little bit longer than normal, than usual. But the conditioned realm is that if we have a sensitive body, filled with all these nerve endings. Just on a physical level, we are going to experience so much. We're going to experience so much. And then there's the whole emotional realm. How many emotions have already come and gone in the first few days of being here? It's just so much that moves through our minds and hearts. And it can feel as if we're all alone on this journey and that we're the only ones maybe that are uncertain or don't feel like things are working out in the way they should be or am I practicing well? Am I doing enough? And I sort of wish at times we could all have maybe transparent thought bubbles, you know, like those little bubbles over our heads. We could just all walk around. It'd be a little bit too, that's too revealing, I think, on a retreat because we have all kinds of crazy thoughts. But the ones that, were more, that are more normalizing and helps us to see, oh, right, you too. You too experience self-doubt. You too want to be liked. You too want to be seen. You too want to be safe and at ease. So we all experience that sort of 
these universal wishes for contentment, for happiness. I just want to name that there's, there's different forms of offering kind of Dhamma talk that sometimes stem from our own interests or personalities. And as you can kind of tell, my form is a little bit to discover in a way where I'm going, I, ha- I do have an intention and a direction. Um, so I already see that I'm kind of finding my way into that. And so part of that is to just sort of... Um, offer that as my, my sharing, kind of from my immediate experience. But I wanted to move in that direction of talking about trust in the path, a sense of faith, confidence, and a little bit of how that begins to move towards this element of wisdom, of right view, so these different qualities that come together. In a way, none of us would be here or would continue to be here if we didn't have some sense that this is onward leading, that this path, this practice is skillful, that it is something that is worth doing. So we might not recognize that quality that we in fact do have this, this feeling. All right, this, this is what brings me here. You have to sort of reflect what brought you here. Why are you doing this? You know, for many of us, when we begin a process of practice again, particularly because the momentum of our daily life has been pretty intense and the mind states have been kind of more reactive, more challenging than the wholesome states of mind, like steadiness of awareness, they're not quite developed. So these first days can feel challenging. And there can even be thoughts like, well, maybe I was suffering before, but now I actually think meditation is the cause of suffering. <laughs> you sort of have this, maybe this little skeptical mind, like things were actually, maybe things weren't going that badly before. <laughs> and, hmm, is this, you know, is this, is this the right thing to be doing? I see these kind of doubts start to come. And it's good to sort of reflect on your own inner confidence. This is not an easy path in the sense that it's so easy to question, to be uncertain. It's going to bring up all of our states of mind. We're going to meet every type of quality of mind and heart that is available, you know, to humanity to being a human being. There are times when I'm talking to groups and individuals and their practice, 
Sometimes I'm sort of just curious when difficult states are coming up. I'm like, just curious if anyone is going to present a mind state that I have yet to have in terms of difficult states, because I think I have had them all. (laughs) And oftentimes I think I've had them all in the span of like an hour, right? Or two hours or a day. So faith and confidence, this is a quality that really brings us into our practice. And even more than that, it can be very immediate. It brings us into the moment. Is this moment worth paying attention to? What's the difference between being aware and not being aware? What's the difference? When I was at Shreyumin with a friend of mine, and she was practicing, it's actually my partner, and I'm pretty sure she doesn't mind because I've told this story before. So she was practicing with me there, and a lot of doubt was coming up. This was some years ago not long after we had met Utejaniya, and this kind of questioning mind, you know, is this, is this enough? And am I doing enough? Where does this go? And why is this happening? And he's just asked this very simple question. Do you value awareness? Do you value being aware? And holding that very simple in a way, and yet it's a deep question of asking, is it beneficial to be awake to what's happening? And all the ramifications of what that means. Is it beneficial to know? It may not be pleasant to know. We've talked a little bit about that, that what the mind starts to touch and gets what gets revealed by our awareness Oftentimes our patterns, things that we'd rather just sweep under, under the rug and we keep sweeping, right? we keep putting things under the rug and then before we know it, maybe our whole life is under the rug. It's a huge mountain. Right? Here, through steady mindfulness, through being aware, we begin to acknowledge, well, what is here? What is this that's here right now? What's happening? Can we have that sense of confidence that any moment of remembering to be aware, that is valuable. That's valuable. And you can say for our conditioning in a way, that's a revolutionary moment. Each moment of awakening, it's like, a microcosm of how the whole path is going to unfold. Any moment of awakening, being awake and aware is all that one can do in the present moment. When that goes away, nothing we can do about that. We let that be. And when the awareness comes back, there it is again. Drip by drip, drop by drop. And that's how 
the reservoir, these qualities become very strong over time. This is not something that we can rush. It's not something that we can do quickly. And this is where that sense of confidence starts to become important. This really is not a a sprint. It's a marathon. The sprint is still this illusion that there's something that we can make the mind do or become faster than its natural unfolding. We cannot make the mind do what we want it to do. I'm sure you know that, right? And I wish we could just do that because we would just read the instructions and we're probably just going to say the same things in a thousand different ways, but it's basically the same, you know, instructions. And yet they bear repeating because our mind needs to hear that again and again. I share, I often share this one period of my practice when I was uh, first with Sayadaw Utejaniya in Burma and I'd be sitting in the hall and he would just sort of pop in and out now and again, offer some reflections, um, sometimes, usually in Burmese, sometimes in English. So when it was in English, I'd finally go, okay. And I don't know if it was his lack of English at the time, and that may have been some, one of the reasons why this is what came out, but oftentimes what he would just start off with was relax. Oh my God, he's so brilliant. <laughs> like, how, how is he knowing what my mind is doing right now? And then the next day, I would go, you know, or the next day, the next time he would come into the hall. And again, I'd hear his voice through the speaker. It's just, relax. I was like, wow. He really knows exactly when to say that word. <laughs> and it happened so many times that I began to recognize, oh, we need to hear these things all the time. We hear them externally. We hear them externally at first, but they become internalized. Slowly they become internalized. Very briefly, just to touch on that process, the Buddha talked about these three levels of wisdom. So there's a lot of pieces that we are kind of dropping in now and again around the element of wisdom. And this is oftentimes we'll ask, well, what is is wisdom? What is that, that... quality? Do I have any wisdom? And it's beautiful the Buddha related to it as this unfolding process, that it begins as something that we hear or that we read. That's called suttamayapanya. So it's heard. So at the time of the Buddha, you'd hear things or discuss with our, you know, with community, with spiritual friends. You sort of talk about the nature of the Dhamma, the nature of the mind and body, and you're hearing. So that's filling the mind, getting knowledge in, into the mind. And then the next level is the mind begins to say, to reflect on it. It becomes an intellectual understanding. Chintamayapanya. So you think about it. Oh yeah, this makes sense. This is true. And then as we continue practicing, that intellectual understanding becomes direct experience. And we know 
that bit of wisdom. We know that understanding. Right, so that's, that's that development. So we hear instructions again and again. We hear these reminders to be aware. Does awareness make a difference? So what arouses faith on the path? Or confidence? What is it that moves us towards practice? And I think this is a really interesting uh, teaching that the Buddha gave. It's a surprising one to me when I first read it, that suffering itself can be the cause for faith. Suffering can lead to faith. So in the wheel of samsara, this kind of cyclical experience that we have moment by moment, and if we kind of open to the Buddhist cosmology, could say life after life. But even just in this process of being alive moment to moment, we can, it, we can see this arising, that from ignorance, there are conditions and causes. From ignorance, you might have... Uh, mental formations, different things that arise. We then have experiences that contact our sense doors. And when those experiences contact our sense doors, it can trigger a mental reaction like craving, resistance. And that can then trigger clinging. And that clinging leads onward towards suffering. And that suffering can be the fuel for the next moment, then that cycle just kind of keeps going. And we could say that sort of describes the cycle of our experience, the cycle of our experience, that because of ignorance and delusion, we get caught into something, some pattern that feels difficult, some reactive state. Once our practice begins, or once we feel as if this is worth doing, and we have some understanding, oh, this is a path. From that very same process of some moment of experience, some reaction, some, some uh, resultant suffering, that can then trigger interest. What is the cause of this suffering? What is this? So rather than suffering kind of endlessly leading us astray, suffering can be the very thing that starts to make us curious. Why am I suffering? So this kind of investigation actually points very directly to the teaching that the Buddha could say is sort of like encapsulates his whole teaching, which was the Four Noble Truths. When we see that suffering has a cause, we begin to look, what is that cause? How do I find my way out of this suffering?
in one uh, essay I was reading by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a scholar monk, he was saying that we usually have three ways that we can respond to a moment of suffering. And when we have a difficult experience, let's say like when the, you know, when the water was coming out of my ceiling onto the floor. So I had three different options. One was generate kind of the conditioned result of my own pattern that might be unskillful. So generating resistance, generating aversion, and really trying to annihilate, annihilate or get out of that experience. So that is, we could say, we could, that's a, the natural human response when we're not really well developed or we're feeling really reactive to experience. That when we have a difficult moment, it can trigger aversion. So then he describes there's a second way that we can respond. And this one might be more mentally healthy. And it may be trying to practice things like endurance or patience, trying to bear with the experience, put up with it. But that's sort of a, a way of kind of putting up with conditions. And this third place, the third way of reacting or responding to something that's difficult is where we try to actually look at what are the roots, the root causes of this moment of, of suffering. So Mark was talking about these unwholesome roots So this is where we start to turn very directly to see what is happening. Where really is my suffering? So is that just to relate my own process around the the water coming through the ceiling? I'll just use that as a theme and then the chirping alarm. very first moment, I could just, as it woke me up and I started hearing the dripping sounds and particularly the second night once the chirping was happening, the very first thought was, you've got to be kidding. (laughs) So that was probably conditioning a little bit of aversion, right? Just, you've got to be kidding. I want to get out of this. All right. So then I thought, what can I do? So that's that process maybe of trying to skillfully meet what's there. Unplug the fire alarm. You know, make sure the towel is there beneath the drip so it's not making any sounds. So sort of meeting life as skillfully as I can. But on the process of what is up to my mind and heart, okay, then I start to get curious. How is my mind responding to being kept up in this moment, to not being able to sleep? Am I generating more resistance, more aversion towards this moment of experience? And so as we go you know, throughout the day, moment to moment, any given moment, we can kind of inquire, how am I responding to this experience? Am I just 
deepening reactivity, resistance, and aversion? Am I just trying to put up with this, tolerate what's here? Or am I getting interested? What are the root causes, deep seeds in the mind? What are the root causes of this suffering? And that's what we're doing. You might not know that, but we are getting really at the root causes, looking into our own mind and heart to see what is here. And it's like, in my way of feeling into that, it really feels like this is what being a mature human being needs to do. We need to open to the nature of this human experience, to this life, into the nature of the mind and really understand it. You know, on the level that will actually free us from patterns that cause suffering. Patterns that cause suffering internally, patterns that cause suffering externally. So I'll just read a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi about that um, turning from suffering to faith. So he said, the Buddha's declaration that suffering is a supporting condition for faith points to the essential backdrop to the awakening of the religious consciousness. We could say spiritual consciousness. It reveals that spiritual awareness and the quest for enlightenment do not arise spontaneously in harmony with our natural modes of world engagement, but require a turn against the current, a break away from our instinctual urges for expansion and enjoyment, and the embarkation in a different direction. And so it requires a turning, right? We turn towards really this question, you know, what is really here? What really is happening in this moment? Really is it, what is the source of this suffering? And we get curious, curious on a personal level, but also curious on a larger level, right? As, as Mark was saying, we were discussing in one of the groups as well, when we really understand the nature of well-being, that doesn't just stop at the kind of boundary of our own skin. The nature of well-being, when we really have that, that interest to bring suffering to an end, it isn't just in our own heart and mind where that gets relieved. It's really to look out into the world and say, what are the causes of this suffering? How do I engage in this world? Right, so that I don't contribute to further suffering and how to bring this to an end. Where the end can really come to an end completely, that we can take of in our own mind. We can do everything that we can with our wisdom and compassion to be in the world and engage. But the Buddha said that awakening is possible for each of us. And it's really a remarkable thing. You think about what that means. 
to look into our heart and mind and to free it from these unwholesome roots. So, just that, I want to talk a little bit about that interplay between faith and wisdom, a right view. You know, we can see in our practice um, really how easy it is to lose a sense of confidence, this feeling of not doing enough. I'm not enough. I'm not skillful enough in practice. Other people are more skillful. Other people look more peaceful. One of the most supportive elements that I learned from being with Sayadaw Utejaniya was really this understanding of right view. And Carol talked a little bit about this. I want to just explore it a little bit more. Was this view, this view that seeing experience really as process, as nature? It is so easy to feel ourselves being cut off from the world, that we are somehow apart from the universe. That we're not actually part of this experience, that we don't necessarily belong here. There's a a quote from, or a stanza from a poem, some of you may know of it, was written in the, I think, 1920s, called Desiderata by Max Ehrman. So this phrase, this one stanza, kind of points to this this way of thinking about right view. And he said, you are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. You are a child of the universe, no less, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. So right view in this way, we could say, if we see ourselves as nature, also as a process, we have a right to be here just how we are. One of the things that my, my partner used to tell me, she'd say, take up space. You know, don't be afraid to take up space. Because my conditioning was very much like, kind of, it's not okay to take up space. And some of us maybe take up a lot of space. And then what is that like if we're too much into the field? But for mine, my particular conditioning was, I'm not really okay to be how I am. And so sort of the Dharma became like this endless construction project. If I just fix this, just improve this, you know, and it's sort of an endless thing. It's just what construction project are we on? 
endless, really is endless. It's something noble about that, but they're also on a deeper level is in a way not yet opening and allowing our deepest nature to be how we are. I'd like to share also this um, way in which I saw Utejaniya when I was first kind of getting to know him and over time. So he not only spoke so much about nature. So if you've ever been with him, you sort of feel as if, oh, he's actually just being nature. So the, in the center there, there's, there's fields and kind of natural rural surroundings. It's increasingly been encroached on by the village life. But when I was first there, just when I look out the windows in the fields, there would be these water buffaloes kind of just grazing and water buffaloes show up a lot in the Buddha's teachings. Mark mentioned some of the buffaloes, the oxes. Um, And so they're just doing their thing out in the fields. And then I would walk by Utejaniya and he's kind of just moving around in really in rolly way, just being his nature. And I began to think of Utejaniya a little bit like a water buffalo. I was like, oh, he's just like a water buffalo. He's just doing his thing. He's not actually worrying about how he seems, how he looks. He's just kind of being nature. And one classic moment when um, I was walking by him and he often sort of, this may be more cultural, but um, also was kind of unique to him. He Sounds would come out one side and sometimes sounds would come out the back side. And... Um, <laughs> One time as I was walking by him, he did that. And I sort of was looking at him like, you're a monk, you know. Shouldn't you be comporting yourself a little bit more disciplined? And so I looked at him and he just said, Dhamma talk. (laughs) (laughs) And I I loved just the nature of that, um, you know, just so natural. It's just nature. And I actually felt, this is years later, and I felt like I was getting somewhere. This is kind of just, it's funny to talk body. Saito actually loves to talk about the body movements and and different processes if you ever get to be with him. But one time we were in a group sitting together and we had gone on a hike and we were just coming to a place of rest, sitting around. And again, he had one of those louder uh, movements and I was sitting next to him. And I just said, as, uh, when that happened, I just said, oh, excuse me. And I completely owned <laughs> what wasn't mine. And to do that, like, sort of like, I'm just going to shield my teacher. But it was more than that. Sort of like just playing with this self-consciousness that I could so easily have around trying to be really good. When I first started teaching and when Sayadaw told me to teach, one of the only things he told me, like his training, 
This is so much like him. Like this was his whole training. So I went through a four-year training with IMS and Spirit Rock. And then Sayadaw's training was one sentence. (laughs) And his one sentence was, don't be too good. (laughs) Isn't that great? I sort of love that. Because I think he could see how easy it is for my nervous system to try to be too good. I try to do something more than what is just here. Just here, very ordinary. That's the invitation, right, that the Dhamma is bringing us towards. Just what's here. What's here? It's very honest, very receptive. So when we're hurting, we know we're hurting. When there's aversion, we know there's aversion. When there's anxiety, we begin to know that. So our practice can really begin to just align more and more with the life that we're living. So as Mark was pointing to, it's not like we need to get out of our family life, get out of our partnership, get out of something else in order to be in the Dhamma. The Dhamma is life, right? The Dhamma is our life. The the nature of our life is always unfolding. Do we know it? Are we understanding something about it? What are we resisting? What are we avoiding? Where is the edge? Where is the edge of my life? The edge of my comfort zone? My comfort zone definitely stopped well before the edge of this platform up here. I was just talking with Carol I was kind of reflecting on how much the mind has opened up its edges. And I was sharing how when I was in the retreat support role, so that role that, you know, if I'm on the other side of the red phone, if you pick it up, I'm there to support, you know, support you. I was sharing how in the beginning of that role, I would just, I was allowed to sit in the back and that was comfortable. And then they would ask you to stand up just to be seen. And then they had to sit in the front just the front corner. I don't know if they're doing this still, but, and then we had to stand up and I almost had a heart attack to stand up and to turn around. So the edge of my life meant I couldn't do things that brought up those kinds of feelings because I didn't like to have those feelings. So of course, speaking to groups, the edge of my life began to shrink as I was growing up because of anxieties. I don't want to do that. I can't go there. I can't go to that experience because I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I don't want to feel nervous. I don't want to feel shame. So life becomes more narrow. I don't want to have that conversation. It's too hard. It brings up too many difficult emotions. So I'm not going to do that, right? So our whole life becomes as one teacher, uh, Anushka, she describes it as like the paper of our life starts very open. And then slowly, it's like the corners, corner by corner, we start folding up the paper and our life becomes this contracted place. As we become aware of something that's difficult, that edge starts to open. It's not insignificant. You're starting to feel and recognize what is here. Is this okay to be with? And we stay with that. Is this okay to be with? Another corner opens. 
as we do that, increasingly we have this confidence that yes, things are difficult, things are unpleasant, but slowly I can actually start to reclaim this birthright of being here. We are part of this universe. And we truly are an amazing part. We are conscious. We're alive. We have this possibility of wisdom, of clarity, of love, of compassion. And yet it's so easy for the dark clouds to come in and just confuse the mind and tell us otherwise. Those are those visiting forces. It's one beautiful line that the Buddha gave saying, the nature of the mind is luminous, it is radiant. It is the visiting forces of greed, hatred, and delusion that obscure it. So the mind by nature is, is radiant. It is luminous. So if we can just kind of trust into that, open to that, recognize that that is the movement. It's not always going to feel that way, but any moment of reconnecting to something ordinary, like a sensation in the body, or you know what mood you're having, like that's the expansion again. We're on the path. I think I'll pause here. I'll just say with, you know, with any Dhamma, it really is offered just kind of for your reflection. It's not something to be um, picked up if it's not helpful or just as reflections. And I think that's one of the most appealing things when I first came to the Dhamma was and I was talking about this word faith or trust or confidence. It is just, it, faith is that inner feeling that, ah, this is, this is something worth doing. Right, something worth doing. And not something to believe in, not something that we have to just kind of go along for the ride. So for you, this is really your life. And all these offerings that we, that we kind of freely put out, kind of let them rest in the heart, let them sit, and things that are helpful, they begin to percolate, and things that are not, we let them go. And slowly we begin to, to find our own kind of wisdom and clarity that's operating internally, right? That really is the possibility and the nature of our, of our mind and heart. So let's just sit uh, together. Don't need to move too much, just kind of being nature. I'd like to suggest that, you know, we don't need any changes to continue being aware. 
just allowing yourself to be exactly how you are. Nothing to fix. And when the fixer comes creeping in, no need to fix the fixer. Thank you for your attention and for your practice. Again, we have about 40 minutes or so to be a child of the universe. We all belong here. So finding ways to just continue knowing your experience and however that looks for you. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.